I don't know if you've remember back, some of you, for some of us it's a long time ago, when you were a high school or young adult, and I see some high school students and young adults here, yeah, there's a, when you're in your teens and your 20s, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a season of life where you think and you're told, particularly today, that you can change the world, aren't you? The whole, your whole life is ahead of you. You're full of optimism agency and excitement and yes you can do it we can do it if we all just work together and we we can change the world can't we and then you get to where some of us are <laughs> and you know what you're just like man the last couple of decades they've been hard I'm tired. If you're a bloke, you know, you hit 50, your testosterone levels start to decrease, so your energy levels are down. And like, who can change the world with decreasing testosterone, right? It's just, man, that's hard, you know? And our, our, our energy goes, and, and maybe we get a little cynical. You don't have to poke me very hard to find a little vein, perhaps a river of cynicism there. <laughs> Oh, changing the world, you know. So I'm, you look at all these young people, and you, oh yeah, they'll learn, you know. The brutal grind of a mortgage, and private school education for their kids who'll just leave them anyway. It'll all come down. And you know, maybe in church it's the same, you know. We look back and we go, ah. Oh, my days when I was in a, a high school and university, they were so exciting, and I was a young adult, and we were doing lots of stuff, and we had energy, and it was all wonderful, and now I've just, you know, man, I've been check, clocking into church for like decades, and uh, it's just a little boring. We've tried stuff, and it might not have worked. And, I don't know. Lord, uh, just pour your spirit out on us today and help us as we read Acts 4 from whatever stage of life we are or whatever place on our spiritual journey we're at, help us to see that you have a plan to continue to use us wherever we are and whoever we are to change the world for you. Amen. So my hope, and this is what I'm going to try and do from Acts 4, is look at what God is saying to you and to me and to us to say changing the world is not just the, it's not just the remit of the young and the foolish. <laughs> Actually, that job never, never stops for us. There's never a time if we're people of faith where we get to retire from God's great mission to heal and save and change the world. What we do might change, for sure. How we do it might change, for sure. But that God wants to use you and me to heal the world, that never changes. And when you're middle-aged and older, you've got to hang on to that. As you head into retirement, and as your body increasingly starts to change, you've got to hang on to that. 
The best is yet to come and God has a plan to use you. For those of you who are young here, don't ever, ever, ever let an old person squash your enthusiasm or your energy or your vision or your hope. And don't ever let a Christian person do that to you. You just, if, if, if there's an older Christian person who's cynical and disillusioned and bitter and twisted, you just, you know, quote Jesus at them. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> well, you know, maybe not. If you're young, you can get away with that sort of stuff. But so let's have a look at this text and see who changed the world. So if, if I were to ask you today, uh, what, would, what are the characteristics of somebody who changes the world for the good? Let, I mean, there's plenty of people who change it for evil, right? Uh, but for good, what are the characteristics of people who have a really profound positive change on the world? Throw up some words, some adjectives that might describe these people. Visionary, hallelujah. Bold. Enthusiastic, what? Evil. Adolf, yeah, yeah, I said let's assume they're changing it for good. Yeah, thanks, Richard. It could be for you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank Proactive. Proactive, yeah, what else? Passionate, ethical. Resolute. Wise, trustworthy. Loving. Thanks, Lauren. Welcome here from France. So good to see you. Go say hi to Lauren. She's a missionary with pioneers in France, in Lourdes. So go talk to her about reaching out to Catholics and helping them understand the God of grace and healing. Uh, okay, so resolute, all kinds of good things. What else? Powerful. Motivational. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Rich. Big teeth. Lots of, you know, an influencer on Instagram. Humble. Yeah, as if humble people change the world. Um, Okay, so that's all good. Have a look. There's one of my favorite verses in the Bible when you look at this in chapter 4. This is the story so far. Peter and John have uh, just healed, we saw this last week, healed a congenitally deformed man. They're on their way to church. They see a guy being de uh, you know, crippled his whole life. They, they, they tell him to get up and walk, and he gets up and he walks, and he, and he walks and he leaps, and he's singing for joy on his way to church, just like you all were today on your way to church, weren't you? We were walking and leaping for joy as we came into the house of God, yeah? Yeah, good. Okay, so he was, and, and the rulers, the, the religious elites didn't like this. They were like, this is dangerous what he's doing, right? Uh, what, what these, these followers of Jesus are doing. So we've got to shut them down. Uh, so, th so they arrest them, throw them in jail, then they interrogate them. They have a problem, though, because the crippled man is standing there next to them, and they're like, uh, this is a little awkward. <laughs> we, can't say it, we can't say it was all a sham and a setup. Though I will tell you a funny story. Um, uh, last uh, Sunday night at 5 o'clock, I did the same sermon I did here. And you know, last week, if you were here, I asked you, you know, uh, what did you think or feel when we heard this story? And one of our folk in five, who's a doctor, said, had to be a setup. So I thought, yes, go the cynics amongst us. Um, it wasn't a setup because everybody knew him, and now he's standing there, and he's a very inconvenient truth for the religious elites. And then we come to, I think, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, uh, verse 13 of Acts chapter 4, when they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. Now, 
Peter and John are being used by God to turn the world upside down. And they're peasants from the north of Israel, fishermen, tradesmen, uneducated. And, and here they are in Jerusalem at the epicenter of the religious, political, economic, and legal power center of the nation of Israel. And here they are, they are healing people. Thousands are coming to believe, and, and the town is in uproar. And, and these religious guys, and these legal scholars, and these political heavyweights, and these rich people are getting together, and they're scratching their heads and going, what the heck? These guys are peasants. They're unschooled, and they're ordinary. Now, why do you think this is such good news for us? Because we're ordinary. And we don't have to send our kids to private schools. Sorry, no, that was a... <laughs> uh, we're unschooled and ordinary, aren't we? We're all ordinary. Now, we like to think we're not. But I think part of our tiredness, you see, when, when we're young, we do have a sense of our own potential and extraordinariness. And what life does, doesn't it, is it grinds us down into the little ordinary box. And we become extraordinarily aware of our own ordinariness. At least I am aware of my ordinariness. And then I read this. And they're unschooled and they're ordinary. Which is wonderful. Like just people, fishermen. Uh, there's a few implications of this. One, let me tell you some research. Uh, Christian Schwartz, the guy behind Natural Church Development, which is this wonderful tool that we use um, to help understand how we grow the health of the church. And Christian has done you know, 30, 40 years studying the church globally. They have 90,000 churches in their database, studying them deeply. And he has found over his years of studying the church, statistically, there is a strong negative correlation between the level of theological education of the senior pastor and the growth of the church. Isn't that remarkable? Hey, yeah, I mean, God, you see, what we think, and, and we get co-opted into this in our culture, we're a, we're a credentialed culture where we think the answer to everything is more study, more education, more credentials, and we think that the, those who change the world in a religious sense are the power elites, the educated, the people who've got it all together, the folk who know everything. You've got to know your Greek, your Hebrew, your philosophy, all that stuff, and someone's got to give you the stamp of approval, and then maybe God will use you, and Acts 4 says no. And the data globally says no, right? Now, that's not to disparage theological education, because I have a bit of it. Though I sometimes, you know, we, we're, what we do with our education, right, is we educate people and that, I think, would include us, because sometimes we are more schooled in Christianity than many. Like, if you've been around in church a while, you've had, we have so many resources, so much education, so many ideas, but I think sometimes we are educated way beyond the point of obedience. So we know all about the truth. But unlike Peter and John, we don't have the spiritual power to take that truth and change the world. 
because we've actually made it all too complicated. And I love complexity. I love ideas. I'm a philosopher by inclination. God says, you know, when we're used by God, it's when we're unschooled, ordinary people, not the preserve of the clergy or the rich or the powerful or the elites, ordinary folk. And what made them capable of this? What, what was, where did it come from? Well, there was spiritual power. They could speak. And their spiritual power was wrapped up in this confidence and this courage. Verse 13, look at that. They saw the courage of Peter and John. And that, friends, if you haven't figured it out, that's an extraordinary statement. That's almost, if it weren't true, it'd be a joke. Calling Peter courageous. What's Peter really renowned for? He's renowned for running away. He's renowned for denying Jesus. Well, I'm with Jesus for three years. I'll never abandon you like everybody else, says Peter. I'm with you till the end, not like these other second-class followers of yours. Me, I'm the special one. Just trust me, Jesus. First opportunity, bang, out the door. No, denying Jesus, scared, witless. A few short weeks later, courage. Ah, look, man, it, and I, I want to... It takes courage to change the world. It actually takes courage to stand up for Jesus, doesn't it? Uh, it's not easy, and I, it's not, it's not going to get easier in our culture or globally. More, more followers of Jesus uh, are persecuted than any other religious group. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today. It takes courage to be a follower of Jesus in northern Nigeria today. It takes courage to be a follower of Jesus in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Iran, in Syria. It takes courage to be a follower of Jesus in your workplace and in your home and in our suburb, not because we're going to get stoned or tortured or thrown in jail, but we're going to suffer that the death of a thousand snubs, the social, the, 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 the thousand cuts of, of not being quite in, of not being acceptable, of people thinking us just a little bit strange. Oh, that can be hard, can't it? It takes courage. It really does. And sometimes we don't make it easier for each other because sometimes um, we deserve to be smacked around the head by our culture, for sure. We do really dumb things. But at the essence of it, the courage to stand and say, you know what? I love Jesus. And I love Jesus more than my promotion, more than my social acceptability, more than my popularity, more than inclusion. I love Jesus that much. That's a, that's a brave thing to say, right? brave in any culture. We've, we've, we've had the privilege. Our, our Christianity has been so good at influencing um, Western culture that in one sense we've been spared a lot of this, but it's, gonna, it's coming back. It's going to take courage as it takes courage for our sisters and brothers all around the world. 
<laughs> they made what made them capable of changing the world. They were powerful. They were courageous. But look, they were also compelled. They were compelled. Verse 18 and 20. Um, now I just I have a prop with me that I forgot to bring. Where's my prop? Okay, look at this. Okay, so um, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, you be the judges. And then he says, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. There's an inner compulsion. There is this pressure building up inside of them. So when you go to a restaurant and you sit down and they say, you know, would you like some water? And they say, would you like still or sparkling? Before Pentecost, Peter was still water. There was not a lot of life inside of him. He was scared. He ran away. There was no inner compulsion. Now what's he like? Shall I open this? We just, what if I, what if I go, I'll just open the, uh, what's going to happen if I open this now? It's going to go everywhere. That's all right. And, you know, I don't know if your kids ever did this, but you know, occasionally in our family, when someone's passing a soft drink from one to the other, they might give it a quick shake. So, you know, their sibling, I would, I don't know, would that, you know, maybe their mother would get covered in soft drink. What would happen if I opened this? It'd be, and actually, it's a, it's a bottle top, so you couldn't even, and it's hard to keep it in, isn't it? I mean, this is sealed tight. It's hard to keep it in, and I didn't bring a bottle opener with me because I would otherwise have been tempted to actually open it. Um, they were compelled. You, they couldn't. You know, even in the face of persecution, they said, we can't stop. And, and it wasn't because they, were, they knew they were going to be successful or popular. Like, so the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, he says, the word, now, now, Jeremiah is a great prophet. He's been told his whole life is going to be a failure and he's going to be miserable. But he says, even in spite of that, he says, the word of God burns inside of me got to get it out, right? So, um, what made these Peter and John capable of changing the world? Well, there was an inner compulsion. They'd gone from still water to sparkling water, and they couldn't keep it in. It just had to come out. Let me ask you, and where you are, but is, do you have that inner compulsion? Now, you do. You do. Let me tell you why I know you do. It's a very human thing to have this inner compulsion, and it's the inner compulsion to share and to talk about stuff that's deeply meaningful to us. If you, if you see a great movie, what are you going to do? Like, you just want to tell people about it, you know? Spoiler alert, they all die, whatever it is, you know? Like, you, you want to tell people, right? Uh, yeah, if you... 
life, you meet someone, the love of your life, you want to tell people. Why do you think Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, are, one of the reasons they're so popular is we just love telling people about stuff that matters to us. I got into trouble many years ago um, when Margot and I got engaged uh, because I was so excited that I started telling people. And this was, you know, long before social media. But apparently what happened is word got around so quickly that Margot's brother heard that we were engaged from others before Margot had got a chance to talk to him. And that was sad. But I, I was like, I was a shaken bottle. I couldn't keep the good news that I'd finally managed to con someone into marrying me. I'm like, wow, this is so unthinkable. You know, someone had said yes. Wow. <laughs> God's plan for us, if you're a person of faith, is that, that this experience of God has had such a deep impact on us that we can't keep it in. Now, it doesn't have to bubble out in an oversharing, extrovert, charismatic way. Part of the problem with having someone like me do a talk like this is I am, I'm like, I am a big, charismatic, visionary, inspirational speaker. I love doing this stuff. It, for me, it just, it's easy for it to bubble out like this. Don't think that your bubbles need to look like my bubbles or like anyone else's bubbles. If, you know... God uses the bubbles that come out of you just as they are, right? Quiet, introvert, maybe struggling with anxiety and depression, maybe battling chronic physical pain, maybe lonely, maybe scared, maybe over-the-top extrovert salesperson, wh what, whatever it is, maybe super articulate, maybe you just struggle to get the words out. Do you know what? It doesn't matter. What matters is God has got so deeply into us and he's done such a work internally that it just compels us to speak about what we have seen or heard. And this is the key, isn't it? This is the key. You can't compel someone to have this inner compulsion. It has to come from God's work inside of us. How did they become like this? Well, two things. They became like this because they believed certain things about Jesus. This is, this is what, what's going to get the bubble going inside of us. Well, how about this for a truth? How about this for a description of the way the world is? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And lest you start thinking saved is some super sort of, you know, weird religious word, if you trans put, put in the word healed there in the full sense. So this, this is what they came to believe to be true about Jesus, that it is only in Jesus Christ that the creator God of the universe is going to heal the world. That's where the healing is happening. That's where salvation, that's where everything that is good and true and just and beautiful, everything is going to be made right in Jesus Christ and if you believe that to be a description of the way the world is, 
then that's something that you want to tell other people about. It's got to bubble out, right? Like it just, you just go, God is healing the world in Jesus. And, and in Jesus, that's where you'll get it, right? You, you actually aren't going to get it in your harbor views. You're not going to get healing from your career. You're not going to get healing and salvation from your uh, fully funded superannuation. Definitely not given what goes on in the super industry today. Uh, you're not going to get healing from your, your marriage or your kids or your grandkids. They're all good things. Like, don't get me wrong, super uh, kids, harbor views, professional success, all of that stuff's good. But according to, to, to this text, it's not going to heal you with a healing that you long for. That alone you'll find in Jesus. And you're not going to get it in Islam. You're not going to get it in Buddhism. You're not going to get it in your pop yoga uh, and, and Buddhism that you do down at Lululemon where you try and embrace wellness and pick and mix spirituality to transcend yourself. You're not going to get it there. You're going to get it in Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's where the bubble came from. That's the compulsion because it's a a hard-nosed view of how the world actually is. That's the claim. It's a truth claim about a description of reality that if we get it wrong or we don't understand it, we miss out on healing. We miss out on life, right? Now, I don't know. Let me ask you two questions. One, in your own experience... Have you found that sort of healing from God? Have you opened your own heart up and said, Jesus, heal me. Save me. End of my life. Like, is that you? Because just coming to church doesn't mean you've made that step, right? You've got to cross the line. You've got to go, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to bet you heal me. I'm going to trust you for healing more than these other things, even though they're good. And don't leave here this morning unless you know for sure, 100%, that, man, you, you are trusting Jesus to heal you, and you're looking to him. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, man, if, if that deeply is your experience, you know, are you, are you continually meditating on it, reflecting on it, and thinking about it, and allowing your experience to just compel you to live for others? Because that takes us to the second thing, where do we get this? We believe these truths about Jesus, but then they got this because what? Look, they had been with Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. <laughs> but I think for many of us, he's a distant friend. And if he's a distant friend, his power isn't at work in us. That's just cold, lukewarm, right? How, 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 much, how are you with Jesus in your life? Uh, and this is not just a religious thing. All the research shows and our experience shows we are who we are because of who we spend time with. Proximity to others shapes us. The data shows if, uh, 
there is a strong, if you're going to, your likelihood or risk of obesity depends on the obesity of your friend's friends. Your risk of smoking depends on the, uh, on the behaviors of your friend's friends. The networks that we find themselves in have major implications on us. Social science tells us that. Experience tells us that. And God says, listen, <laughs> come spend time with me so that I can shake you up and fill you with my Holy Spirit so that you can go and tell others about him and you can bring healing to the world. You can change the world. That's it. So how do you spend time with Jesus? Let's pretend that... that how do you, like, well, guess what? He's always there with you, right? So maybe just talk to him regularly. Maybe just build a practice of continual awareness. I was talking with a young person not so long ago who's fairly new to the faith, and we're chatting about how this could happen, and I said, think about triggers in your life to make you aware of God's presence with you. So uh, he's off to university, and so what he's done is he's figured out on his, as he walks to university, he passes this sign and this tree and this thing. And he says, at each of those points, as he goes through this physical thing, they're a trigger for him to just pause and say, Jesus, I'm just, I welcome you to my life. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will fill me so that I can live for you today. Like it doesn't cost him any more money. doesn't take him any more time. It's just that conscious awareness, you know? You walk in. If, if you're, uh, you know, I was chatting a while ago with someone uh, who's on track to be a surgeon, and uh, I said, look, you know, how do you involve God in your workplace? Well, when you're scrubbing up for surgery and you're there and you're washing your hand, use that trigger as a way to ask Jesus to fill you and be with you and to guide your hands in surgery. Yeah, just trigger, because Jesus is always with us. And then it's like inviting him in and welcoming him in to every bit of your life. That's what we do. And we pray. That's when you read the book of Acts. You see immediately after this, they prayed and they were full of the Holy Spirit. So we, we need to pray. We need to develop this profound, deep intimacy with Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in us. And then it changes us, right? Because that's what, that's what intimacy with Jesus is. The filling of the Holy Spirit. This is God's way of going, shh in your life, right? Let me tell you, you know what sometimes does it though? If, if we don't embark on this in our times of comfort, you know what? God will use suffering and hardship sometimes to cut through and then he's going to shake us and shake us and shake us so that we cry out to him and we invite him into our lives. That's what he's doing, right? Like, Come on. Come on, darling street. You know. Come, let Jesus in. Let the Holy Spirit come. And, and then, you know what? We change the world. We reach beyond ourselves. We love and serve others. We put on events like Friday night, hey? That's changing the world, right? We invite friends to church. We pray for the sick. 
It's interesting when you read the last bit of chapter 4, you see one of the things that happens, one of the signs of the grace of God is there were no needy people amongst them. Let me tell you, it's only when the Holy Spirit is poured into your lives that we can, that God, it's only a massive miraculous work of God that he can prize our grubby little fingers off our wealth so that we actually become profoundly generous. Like that's a great work of God when we, when we redistribute our wealth so that there is no need amongst us. I thought it was so exciting for me, you know, uh, we don't, none of us really are poor here, uh, for sure, where even, even if you're on welfare in Australia, globally, you're like still in the top 10% of the world, right? But you know what we did on Friday? We worked with IJM so that slaves won't have any need long term, and that is because God's grace was powerfully at work in us. That's why Christians set up aid and development organizations and we serve the poor because our parish is now the whole world, right? So that's what happens when God shakes us up, when we're so full of the Spirit, we're compelled in word and deed to say we're going to live and work for the good of others to change the world. That's so exciting. Hey? (laughs) I'm pumped. And, uh, you know, prize to anyone who opens this. Let's pray. (laughs) Our Lord God, uh, thank you for Peter and John and uh, this story. Fill us. Fill us to overflowing with your spirit.